Felty wrote, is Oda Biha. Welcome once again to Crown the Biha Short Stories and Poetry. I'm Terence O'Donnell, your Irish Calais. I'm glad you decided to take a little time out in your busy day to listen to some more stories and poems from Medium.com writers. This week, I only have five readings for you, four stories and two poems. One of the stories is the fourth chapter from Beyond the Waterwall, and another chapter 13 from the Sanctuary Story. So I will apologize up front now as I have a sinus infection, so my voice may sound a little off, but I'll still do my best for you here. So gather around the hearth fire and let me read you some stories and poems. My first story, From Beyond the Water Wall, Chapter 4, The Arms Dealer by Don Woodby. Now previously, Mars woke up in a different reality. His arm had been replaced by a gun, his wife was younger, his daughter didn't exist, and he didn't recognize anything around him. Mars sat on the old worn-down gray couch that lay in the middle of the living room. He looked at the steam leaving the kettle and flying up to the ceiling. Ren reached into the cabinet underneath the stove and grabbed a container full of many different tea bags. Mars waited quietly, his face masking the intense bumping of his heart. She looked at him, biting her lips. I'm going to try and start from the beginning, but I'll have to sum it up. Mars lifted his body and adjusted his position, leaning forward and putting his hand on his chin. We had a very ordinary life until three years ago, she continued, as she moved towards the couch and handed him a cup of tea. We both worked from home, and we led a pretty comfortable life. Then the election year came. It was between two major candidates. The rest were irrelevant. We supported one, who seemed reasonable, as much as you can expect from a politician. The other was named Bogus, and he was exactly what you would imagine from a candidate. He promised equality and protection. The media loved him. People supported him. We couldn't understand. We could smell the boat and BS from far away. She stopped to take the sip of her tea. She moved her hair away from her eyes and placed a cup on her center table. Anyway, he won, of course. Some said the elections were a fraud, but I don't believe it. See the guy on all those billboards? It sounded more like an affirmation than a question. Yeah, she rolled her eyes. Beautiful specimen, right? So from there, how did it get that bad? After he won, the first six months were fine. Many expenses, increases in taxes with the excuse of having no money, and all those kinds of things you can already imagine. We had always assumed a great deal of money went to the press due to the lack of criticism. Nothing extraordinary. Still, they named his general, Agon, his right-hand man. Everything went downhill. No one could say if it was bogus or Agon calling the shots. I don't know if it was bogus' plan all along to strengthen his government, or if Agon simply seized the opportunity and took control. Either way, bogus is still the image we all see. They started taking private property, and almost all businesses, big or small, were seized. The others had to pay the officials to keep operating. At that point, we couldn't work anymore, and we had to live for months out of our savings. Then after we realized that things wouldn't get back to normal anymore, we decided we had to do something about it. I don't know if you noticed on the walls around the city, the graffiti? She stood up again and sauntered toward the counter. I did. There were two types, I think, he followed her. Black and red, right? She nodded as she poured more water into the kettle. They are from two different gangs. The red one with the eye and the arrow is a symbol of the Liberation Army. The black one with the star and the knife is from the Freedom Renegades. They are rival groups with opposite views, but they have a truce now. They were pretty small before, 
But with the whole situation, their radical views started attracting more people, and they grew a lot. Mars scratched his head and exhaled. <sighs> so what does that have to do with the whole story? When our savings were almost over, we began to look for a way to make more money. You had the idea of manufacturing weapons and selling them to both groups. We both agreed that anything against the current regimen would be an improvement. She paused for a moment and shrugged. Anyway, with your background in engineering, it wasn't hard to learn how to build them. They were very rudimentary, of course, but the demand was high since control was absolute when Bogus took over. So this makes more sense now, Mars said, looking down at his arm. Exactly, she said with a grin. I thought you would rather have that than a normal prosthetic. So, how long have you, I mean, we, been doing this? Proceeding. We started selling with the weapons a little more than a year ago, and it had been a steady source of income. The two groups usually strike government buildings from time to time. Nothing happens. Nothing changes. But at least we made our money out of it. We plan to gather enough to escape. It isn't easy. All borders are shut down. We figured we needed to bribe some middle-ranking official who would make his subordinates turn a blind eye and let us cross. We should have enough in about one to two years. Mars kept walking nervously around the room. From time to time, he stopped and leaned on the counter. Well, I don't have that much time. I had to figure out a way to go back fast. I need to make sure my wife and daughter are okay. Ren pulled him back to the couch. She held his hand tightly and caressed his shoulder. We don't even know how you came here and if, if there's even a way back. I gotta try. He then sat quietly for a moment, taking deep breaths. Where did you find me after all? Wait, I'm getting there. She grabbed two more tea bags. So one day, we had a delivery for some guys from the Liberation Army. I believe that an informant ran us out because two government soldiers were waiting near the delivery spot. We tried to turn around, but they came to check our bags. We knew we'd be arrested, and being arrested now was worse than dying. So you put yourself in front, pushed me back, and said the bag was yours. I stepped forward and told you that I wouldn't leave you. One of the guards punched me in the face. She moved her hair, revealing the cross-shaped scar on her forehead. At that moment, I knew you wouldn't stay still. I tried to grab you and to stop you, but it was too late. You reached for the guard's weapon and told me to run. You shot the other one, but the soldier from whom you took the pistol shot you with a second gun. He shouted for me to run again. You still managed to shoot the remaining guard, but we could hear the sirens, and I knew that many would come. You told me again, lightly, to run. I'll never forget your smile. I ran away and didn't look back. I just did it because I wouldn't want your sacrifice to be in vain. They stood there in silence. Ren's teary eyes sparkled. She exhaled, looking down as if finally accepting what happened. This was a little more than a week ago, she said, rubbing the corner of her eyes. After that, everything was blurry. I laid low. I haven't sold anything since. Then I saw you, hurt. Everything was so confusing. It was you, but you looked so different. Where did you find me exactly, he said, getting up from the couch again. Maybe I can find my way back there. It's not that simple. I didn't exactly find you. Some guys from the Freedom Renegades found you passed out on the beach. We knew them from previous business transactions. Spike was the only one who knew where we lived. They went to him and he brought you here immediately. You were very lucky they found you. Mars listened to it carefully without reacting. Introspective. It simply didn't add up. How did he even end up on the shore? He walked around the living room, trying to make some sense of it all. He suddenly stopped. 
His breathing was heavy, but somehow he felt calm. So it is decided, he said. There is no way you can keep living here, and I am clearly not going to stay either. I'm going to get you out first. Then I will find a way back home. Rain looked at him, frowning. A smile appeared timidly on her face. She didn't say anything. Is the beach near the border, he asked. Yeah, but the border is well guarded. There's no way we can go past it. We'll have to come up with a plan. And so that's the end of chapter four. Next, I have a poem for you. And it's called The Best of Love Poems, The Enchanting Fairy. Now, the verses bar are by Mihai Emanescu, translated by Julia Kalman. And so this is a, this is a poem that was written by somebody who's long dead. Um, and, I'm, and she gives us the English version of it. Um, the original one, I'm going to roll down here. I believe it was Romanian. Um, hang on a minute. I will let you know. Uh, yeah, Romanian. He was a, okay, so Mihai Emenescu, born January 15th, 1850, died June 15th, 1889, was a renowned Roman, Romanian romantic poet, novelist, and journalist. He's celebrated as the most prominent and influential figure in Romanian poetry, known for his extensive collection of 46 volumes and around 14,000 pages of manuscripts, and his ex exploration of metaphysical, mythological, and historical themes in his poetry. So that's, that's where the poem came from. So now I'm going to read it to you here. The Enchanting Fairy. White shadows sparkling and bright give birth to the silver moonlight. She spread them over the waters wide, laying them gently in the countryside, gathering flowers in twilight's trance to weave a spider's delicate dance. She embroiders the cloak of night with precious stones gleaming and bright. By the lake, where the clouds have spun, a delicate shadow, a veil undone, broken by the movements of waves like spheres of light in watery caves. Leaning her reed to one side, the girl by the lake does quietly bide, casting red roses with a magical art upon the spellbound water, a work of heart. To glimpse a face, she intently peers, as the water ripples in perfect spheres. For the lake is enchanted, long ago spoken, by a word the Holy Wednesday was woven, to reveal a face that she longs to see, young roses she tosses, wild and free. For even the roses, captivated twine, by the word the Holy Friday does assign. She gazes on, her hair aglow, her face in the moonlight's gentle flow, in her azure eyes a magical tune, where all fairy tales softly commune. Prince Charming of the Linden Tree Blanca, no, from cradle's embrace, the Lord is destined to be your groom's grace. Forborn you were, sweet child divine, from love unworthy yet pure and fine. Hand at the holy on a shrine, beneath the starry sign divine. You find the caress of life's fate, the salvation from my face's stake. I won't, dear father, let them sever, my young and joyous soul forever. I love the hunt, the games unfold, let others bear the world's heavy hold. I won't cut my hair a flowing cascade, reaching down to my heels in shade, to go blind reading from a holy book and the fragrant smoke of incense I forsook. I know better what suits your grace. Leave behind the world's relentless chase. At dawn we'll set out, hearts unwound. 
towards the old and holy monastery profound. She hears, she weeps, it seems a dream, as if to leave this world, she deems, led by desolate thoughts, a yearning unnamed, a heartache deep, a soul inflamed. Weeping, she restrains her noble steed, snow white and swift, it takes the lead. She smooths its proud mane with care, and crying, she saddles it with flair. She leans atop, and they depart, her hair dancing in the wind, a work of art. Not looking ahead, or nor turning back, on lost paths through the woodland track. In the valley, she walks through the night, into endless woods out of sight. As the evening's red rays fade away, from the heavens a farewell display. Shadows glisten in the woods like lightning as she passes through, eyes brightening. Amidst the leaves, gentle murmur, and the bee's soft rhythmic hummer. In the heart of the forest she arrives, by the ancient linden tree where life thrives. And the bewitched spring sweetly sings, in her ears enchanting echoes ring. Awoken by the gentle murmur of water, she startles a world to alter. Sees a young man by her side, on a black horse where shadows hide. With large eyes she, he looks at her, dreamy, tender, love to confer, linden flowers in his black hair, a silver horn at his side, rare, begins to play, enchanting and dolorous. His heart swells with the love so wondrous. From the beautiful stranger before his eyes, in the moonlit night, beneath starry skies, his hair touches her in a tender grace, and her cheeks blush with their radiant haze. She lowers her long lashes, shy, over eyes that speak deep and sly. A smile graces her lips, enchanting. Her lips, dried by love, begin granting. Opening, long parched and dry, in the moonlit night under the starry sky. When entirely captivated by the scene, she bends toward him, a soul serene. He stops playing with a mournful voice and speaks, making a momentous choice. He embraces her while on horseback. She defends with one hand, tried to trying to push back. Yet she yields, feeling her heart's embrace, with love's fervor, filling every space. On his shoulder, her head gently falls, her face turned upward within love's thralls. While a horse's grace, silent and near, she gazes at him, her soul sincere. Only the sweet murmur of the enchanted spring, deafeningly melancholic, makes the heart sing as the moon emerges, casting shadows in grace on the field white as snow, in a moonlit embrace. As she continually lengthens, shadows cast, climbing up the sky, memories vast. But they pass, lost in the wood's green glow, with their lives lost in a timeless throw. At the castle gate, the horse stands in foam. The next day, it seems like a distant roam. But his beautiful mistress, in a world unknown, remains lost, her destiny overthrown. So those actually two poems there, my apologies, um, from this same Mahay Minescu. So I hope you liked them. So I'm going to take a little break right now, just kind of wet my whistle, uh, trying to get kind of clear my throat a little bit here before we get into the next story. I want to take this time to ask for a donation of any amount to help me keep this podcast going, if you can, and to also explain how to find my website and what's inside when you arrive at the door. My podcast will remain free to subscribe to on all the major podcast apps at Substack for the first month and on my YouTube channel, Kranabiha. I have set up a donation link on Kranabiha Stories and Poetry at rss.com and a donation is paid on my website at 
www.kranabiha.com, all using PayPal for your security. Think of it as me passing my hat around to you at the end of my visit each week. If you like this podcast, please share it with everyone you know in your social circles as the writers I showcase in this podcast deserve all the exposure they can get. I created this podcast for them because I love to read their work and I believe it should be shared with the world. Now I want to explain how to find my website. Since this show is audio only, just type in www.cranna-beatha.com in your browser and search for it. The website domain name is Gaelic and may be a little hard to find unless you know what you're looking for. Then bookmark it if you like it. I also have the RSS feeder enabled, so if you like my blog posts, you can be notified whenever I post something new. Search for www.crowdnabiha.com in your RSS feeder and set it up. Users finding the website for the first time will reach the welcome page to learn a little bit what's inside. There you'll see the homepage link at the bottom of the page. On the homepage, you can learn a little more about what Kranabiha means for a little bit of Irish culture and a little bit more about me in general. On the menu bar at the top, there are links to all the pages in the website. The blog section where I post podcast newsletters, blog articles, stories and poems, and a drop-down podcast menu with links to both podcasts, a donations page, an ad page to purchase my published books, and a contact page in case someone cares to leave a message. Thank you for your patronage and support. So I hope you enjoyed my little advertising here. Um, now I'm back and I got my next story. Um, and it's a second part from Rachel Anderson Lee. Now I read you the first part and this one is entitled A Magician is Never Late by Rachel Anderson Lee, published in the Kraken Lore. So the story picks up after the events of A Magician Never Reveals Her Secrets. And next, my dear viewers, our magician extraordinaire, Adelaide Westvale herself, holds up an unlit match. Watch carefully. She strikes it. James paused, letting the video catch up as he recorded his narration. Footage from one of Adelaide's older shows flickered on screen, surrounded by editing buttons and fluctuating waveforms, then blows it out while her other hand, holding the matchbook, flips up the hidden pre-burnt match. Now she's going to make her unsuspecting audience think she's doing real magic, when in reality, (laughs) James stopped his recording with a huff and glared at his phone. Leave it to his brother to interrupt a great take. He answered anyway. What do you want? Paxton Witt always wanted something. Money, magic, or free babysitting services for his twin tween tyrants. But instead of a plea, heavy breathing crackled through the connection, broken only by a low sob. James hesitated. Pax? They're gone, Jay. I don't... He choked off into incoherency. James was scrambling to think of what to say when Pax and his wife, Olivia, cut in. Grace and Hope are missing. It looks like they were trying to use a spell to become princesses, she spoke with a tremor in her voice. Please tell me their spell specified this time in reality, James cringed, trying to search all of time and space for them, or whatever pieces of them remained after the magic took its due, would probably kill him. Yes, but not in this realm. There are char marks on the carpet, and everything smells like sulfur. James groaned. Any other day, he would have said his nieces would make excellent little devils. However, eleven years old was too young to start their infernal reign, and their royal title shouldn't come by virtue of marriage to a demon prince. 
and I'm assuming you don't want me to involve the consortium, he sighed. Having the organization's power and brains behind him could probably get the kids back in five seconds flat. Unfortunately, the consortium's approach to deviant magicians was to strip them of all magical memories, and they didn't care if they snagged a few strands of sanity or imagination along with them. As annoying as his brother was, James didn't want him and his whole family reduced to raving lunatics or soulless robonoids. On the other hand, it would be crazy to face down a horde of demons on his own. He couldn't let Paxton and Olivia come along. Their emotional investment was too strong. The instant a demon offered them a trade-your-life-for-theirs kind of deal, James would find himself the reluctant guardian of two traumatized preteen magicians. He needed someone outside the consortium, a magician, someone brave, preferably powerful, someone with creativity and control. His gaze snagged on his own computer screen and the daring auburn-haired magician holding up a burnt matchstick. No, not Adelaide, but no. Here's the deal, James said, clapping his hands together. I'm willing to forgive the $42 you owe me if you help me rescue my nieces from hell. Adelaide burst out laughing, doubled over on the front porch. James had expected his dowsing compass to lead him to a studio apartment near the center of the city, but it had brought him into a suburban neighborhood full of gardens garnished with butterflies and yards sprinkled with colorful toys. He'd never seen Adelaide out of costume either, and his unruly attention kept lingering on her fuzzy purple sweater and a polka-dotted headband barely taming her waves of auburn hair. What's going on? A woman with tired eyes and a few gray streaks in her own reddish-brown locks approached the door with a suspicious frown. Adelaide pulled herself together and waved in his direction. Sis, this is James Witt. The wicked gleam in her eyes as she said his name made James' stomach flip, but he focused on the woman and extended a hand for her to shake. Hi, Adelaide must have mentioned me. The woman eyed his extended hand coolly and didn't take it. You're the consortium's regional representative, aren't you? Yes, ma'am. I monitor Nod's consortium magic use. Then explain the whiskers, she demanded, crossing her arms. James swallowed. Honestly, he didn't know if he could explain why he'd used magic to give Adelaide cute little cat whiskers the last time they'd met. He'd been told to keep an eye on her family and a few others, and it was a pretty boring job most of the time but when he saw Adelaide towing the consortium's line by walking through glass windows and making rainbows arc between trees, his job became interesting, and being obvious to his role from the start would have made her avoid him more effectively, so he'd pretended to be a hyper-rational heckler, outing her magic tricks whenever he could, without declaring his role or power. He still couldn't admit what insanity had possessed him to perform true magic in front of her, worse on her, Genevieve, don't ruin the mood, Adelaide grinned. James here was just begging for my assistance. I wasn't begging. We were making a deal. Adelaide snorted. Then $42 isn't nearly enough. I want a favor. No way. Compromise. I give you $42 and I'll buy you dinner. Genevieve's eyebrows rose into her bangs as James' cheek flushed, but Adelaide didn't seem to notice the implication. It's Chinese takeout night, she said. You buy for us all, then you've got a deal. Done. Let's go. James hit his relief by turning his back to the door and striding away. Adelaide stepped up beside him, and James carefully ignored the vanilla and hyacinth scent of her. 
Dinner's at sunset. Don't be late, Jen called from the doorway. A magician's never late, Adelaide yelled back. Hey, you know, James, I've always wanted to tell you to go to hell. Who'd have thought I'd be tagging along? It took them several hours to plan their strategy for rescuing the not-quite-princesses, changing into the costumes, and preparing a portal to hell. Okay, James shook out his hands. So, magic doesn't work down there for us, but we're just going to go anyway. We could end up stuck in hell for the rest of our lives. James frowned at the sigil-marked door. Won't happen. Hell doesn't have Chinese takeout. Adelaide's dangerous grin sparkled like rhinestones on her black tailcoat just before she stepped through. James laughed and followed her before he lost his nerve. The portal dropped him into a quaint little brimstone wedding chapel, squatting on the edge of a lava-filled chasm. Outside the blood-stained glass windows, the sky glowed in ominous shades of crimson and rust, streaked with scowling black clouds. Waves of sulfur and rotting meat crept between the pews making James wrinkle his nose as he surveyed the bristling demonic congregation. Leathery wings, gleaming fangs, antlers, claws, slime, and forked tongues, and all of them are relatively small and young-looking. Adelaide brought her own showman's introduction, pattering away about tricks and magic and weddings while James looked for his nieces. On the dais at the front, beneath several profane religious symbols and unholy signs, his twin nieces stood in black lace wedding dresses, each beside a demon no older than themselves. The demon boys had carefully gelled and combed their hair between the two stubby horns sprouting from their human-looking skulls. Beneath the matching tuxedo jackets, their spade-tipped tails thrashed in beside their cloven hooves at the interruption. Our princesses summoned us to claim them, the young demons protested in eerie unison. Uncle James, Grace quealed, you came for us. We're sorry, we're sorry, Hope began to blubber. This union is all right, the demon boys snarled, baring their fangs simultaneously. Adelaide snorted as she stepped in. It's really nobody's right to abduct kids, which is why we're here to challenge you. If we win, they come home with us. No questions asked. Got it? The boys exchanged a hesitant glance and eyed Adelaide from head to toe. The red of her hair glowed like embers in the infernal light streaming through the chapel windows. She drew a deck of cards from her sleeve, and the thrum of her shuffling was a mesmerizing spell in itself. You know, human magic is impossible here, she said, so surely you must be able to explain the trick I'm about to show you. Snarls and shrieks filled the wedding chapel. Of course, some squealed. It is tricks, another cried. We will know. Wings flapped and tails lashed the air. Claws clutched at demonic wedding finery as Adelaide stepped up the altar. But if you can't, you're going to bring us all back safely, Adelaide grinned. And if we figure out how you did it, demon boys purred, eyes glowing red, we get your eternal servitude? James opened his mouth to interrupt, but Adelaide had already said, done, and slapped her cards on the altar. Inspect the deck. It's perfectly normal. Choose any five cards. Show them to your gathered friends, but not to me, and hand them to my assistant. Adelaide obligingly covered her own eyes. The princes of hell frowned at first, but couldn't resist Adelaide's showmanship, and James soon found himself holding the Queen of Hearts, Three of Clubs, a Jack of Diamonds, Nine of Spades, and Ace of Hearts. Now, my assistant will hand you one of the cards. Show your intended brides, show the congregation, show anyone but me, while my assistant places the remaining cards on the altar. Esteemed princess, 
It may try to guard your card as well as you guard your secrets, but it won't be enough. The card you hide is the Queen of Hearts. The human twins gasped. The demon's eyes went wide. The audience stirred and murmured. Lucky guess, one demon snarled. You stacked the deck, the other accused. No. Adelaide's ignomatic smile riled them even more than her grin. Let's play again. Shuffle the deck well, my dear demons. I shall wait outside the chapel while you choose your cards. James, my lovely assistant, calls me back when things are ready. She winked at him before sauntering out. The demons chose more carefully this time. James laid out the king of diamonds, nine of hearts, jack of spades, and nine of clubs before calling Adelaide back in. The three of diamonds, she declared after a quick glance at the remaining four. Can you explain my impossibility? No. Then we'll be leaving with the girls now. The demon princess gnashed her teeth and pulled at their finely groomed hair, but eventually conceded defeat and brought them back to Grace and Holt's bedroom. Posters of ponies and pig coverlets clashed with the black attire of the magicians and the demons. The young demons bowed to their not-quite princesses, then Adelaide. Great magician, they intoned, eyes glowing red. We will meet again. They disappeared mere instants before Paxton and Olivia burst in to smother their daughters with kisses and scolding between sobs. How did you do it, Uncle James? Grace asked, wiping her eyes. Doing magic in hell is impossible, Grope agreed, blowing her nose. Adelaide held a finger. I'm a, a magician never. Math, James cut in. Permutations in Hall's distinct representative theorem, to be exact. Adelaide smacked him on the arm, making him smile. Stay for dinner, Olivia pleaded. I don't know how I can ever repay you for saving our girls, but dinner's the least I can do. Can't today, Adelaide said. I promised my nibblings we'd have Chinese food tonight. Maybe next week. Same goes for me, James added. I'm buying. You know, you make a pretty good assistant, Adelaide admitted as they walked down the sidewalk, carrying bag bags of chow mein and egg rolls. James swallowed. Thank you. You should think about... No, Adelaide. Seriously, thank you for coming with me. You were amazing. I couldn't have done it without you. And I'm sorry for being such a jerk at your shells. I'll stop going. Adelaide froze on the sidewalk outside her sister's house. Are you kidding me? A couple freaking demon princes just said they're planning to come after me and you want to stop following me around? What if they send their scary big brothers or something? And I actually get pretty good advertising from your debunking channel, so I'm not letting you off the hook that easily. The settling sun lit streaks of gold in her hair as she strode away, takeout bags rustling at her sides. Plus, she called over her shoulder as a couple of thigh-high kids swarmed at the door. You still owe me $42. James smothered a smile. Hey, we agreed I'd pay up in fried rice and fortune cookies, he called back, lingering longer than he knew was wise. Yeah, but you're going to help us eat it, so you're still on the hook for the cash, Adelaide retorted, jerking her head towards her sister's door. Come on. James had followed her into hell itself a few hours ago. A family dinner would be easy compared to that, wouldn't it? So that's the end of that story. Um, I'm not sure if she's going to write another one, but if it comes up, I'll let you know. So now I'll read to you Chapter 13 of Sanctuary, Dorian Disclosing His Alien Origins to Leah. Bertha Has Endangered the Sanctuary of the Cabin by Robert J. Longpre. At the cabin, 
Bertha had found a way to let her abusive husband and a number of other people know where she was using GPS with the Wi-Fi. As the head of the household, she decided not to inform the others about asking her friends to join her at the cabin. She was certain that once they were there, no one would have the guts to send them away, especially as one of them was the father of her children. As well, once her friends became part of the community, her hold on the leadership would be ensured. In her mind, Dorian was a gutless leader, and his wife Leah no more than a dish rag. With any luck, she could push them out and have even more of her own family and friends come, and then they could completely take over the site. Hard times were coming. It was going to be all about survival of the fittest and the strongest. Dorian was well aware of what Bertha was doing. In a way, he had expected something like this to happen. His experience with humans had taught him too many were bitter and angry with the world and with people who had more than them, or whom they perceived had more than them. He just hadn't expected her to betray the sanctuary so soon. Now, knowing others were coming, he activated a perimeter shield that would keep out not only humans, but any animal. The shield would not only keep others out, it would also prevent those within the shield from leaving except through the underground passageways that were only responsible to his touch as well as Ben's, Carl's, and Carrie's touch. The only one yet to return to the cab from the last sortie was Carrie, whom he expected to arrive by noon. When the children were at their lessons, Dorian asked Leah to take a walk with him. It was time she found out the truth. A lot depended on how she would respond to what she learned. I've got something to show you in the supply shed, he said. Can you come now, or should I wait until you're not busy? It will take more than an hour, so just so you know. Now's fine, Dorian. Dorian had thought of having Anne tag along, but immediately dismissed that thought. It was something that Carrie would have to do. As for his daughter, whatever the result was following this disclosure to Leah, when and what he told his daughter. Once in the supply shed, he took Leah down to the underwater ship. He was surprised at the lack of questions or surprise from Leah. Once inside the ship, he led her to one of the seats by the window. Unlike when he had taken Carrie into the spacecraft, he stopped so that both he and Leah could put on a pair of jumpsuits. You're pretty quiet, Leah. Do you have any questions? More than you could probably ever answer, Dorian, but there's only one that needs to be answered right now. This is a spacecraft, isn't it? Yes, it is. After a few moments to process that response and its implications, Leah then asked, You're not really a human, are you? I am a human, Leah. At least I'm a physiological human. Damn, Dorian, you know what I mean. You're not from this planet. You're an alien. You're right, Leah. I come from a different planet. Dorian took the time to tell the story of his escape from the planet of his origin and the fact that only some of the men from his planet managed to survive. The Earth was seen as the last chance for his people to not fade away in history as if they had never existed. So basically, you're telling me that you came here to find a woman, that Ben and Carl, and who knows how many other men, came here to find women to breed in for the survival of your people. I know it sounds bad, but yes, it was all about survival, Dorian admitted. He was worried that this wasn't going as well as he had hoped. Perhaps the last 20 years have been wasted. Do you love me? Or have I just been a baby factory? Leah's temper was up and reason was bypassed. She knew he loved her, or at least she wanted to believe it. But the story hinted at another possibility, leaving her feeling like an object, not like a woman who was loved. Of course I love you. I wouldn't have married you otherwise. If I was only interested in you as a baby factory, as you call it, you would have dumped me years ago. 
is because I love you, why I'm disclosing all this to you today. I admit, I should have probably done this years ago. However, I didn't think it would matter one way or the other, as I had no intention of changing the life we had built together as a family. What aren't you telling me? Leah asked. The only way I can protect you and our children is to leave the planet. There is another planet to which some of our ships have traveled. It offers us a better chance of having our children grow up so we can become grandparents. And you want us to go with you? To leave our own planet? Yes, was the only answer he gave to her question. Before you make your decision, listen to what Carrie will tell us about what he has been experiencing during his trip. Oh, and another thing. Carrie has my genetic structure. It's why he's immune to the deadly virus currently destroying civilization as we know it. Leslie doesn't have the same protection, Leah blurted out. No, if both of you were immune, it might have changed my mind about leaving Earth. I have to get both of you to a safer place. I can't lose you senselessly. If I didn't love you and our children, it would make leaving the planet so much easier. Leah believed her husband. He had never shown her anything but love in all the years they had spent together, even when she had struggled, as all women do, through that stage of marital life where children, the needs of a husband, and the perceived loss and worth and meaning had all been her a hard woman to love. He never gave in. He held on to them when she could have easily let it slip away. We need to go back now. Bertha has breached the security of our compound by sending our location to a number of other people. She's attempting to take over the compound. That's the reason I couldn't delay telling you any longer. It appears I can't keep the outer world out of our home here in the forest. Next week, we'll have chapter chapter 14. My last story of the day is a very, very short story. And it's something they're calling drabbles. Um, they're basically one to two minute little stories based on a set of words. So this one is entitled Up to Code, Just Another Day in the Suburbs by Graham Flandango. And he published this in Fiction Shorts. The random word of the day is harassed, according to this. Officer Crank stood before the red-faced Mr. Hall, doing his best to maintain his composure. This is harassment, Hall cried. I'm being harassed. Sir, we have had several complaints from your neighbors, Crank pointed out. What law have I broken? What law? Which, Crank had to admit, he was trying to figure out himself. He looked at the large, featureless cylinder that filled the man's backyard and towered hundreds of feet into the air. It hummed ominously. You are... Do you have a permit for this? A permit? His face got redder. Harassment! Crank sighed. He was going to need backup. And that's all the stories I have for you this week. As I said, I apologize for my voice. I'm a little under the weather. Um... And I, you know, hope that doesn't deter you from coming back next week. So with that, I'll say goodbye and enjoy your weekend. Slancha. Gora Mahagan. Thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed the variety of stories and poems again this week. Maybe one of them might touch your heart a little. Disclosure for everyone. In order to read the complete stories and poems, you will need to sign up for subscription in Medium. If I see a link by the author on one of the stories to allow everyone to read it, I will let you know in the newsletters. Please return again next week for another episode of Cron de Bia Stories and Poetry. As a show to Kate, I want to continue to delight you with a story or poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. Long life and fair health to you. 
Salfata Agustrek, Slancha Tukoy, Slango Foil. Goodbye for now. <laughs>